So Father, we now come before you and your word, and uh, what a joy it is to be able to uh, continue to worship you now in this way, and uh, I am so thankful for this gift, um, this gift of revelation, um, uh, which I so needed and we so need, to understand something about this world and how it came into being, to understand something about the God who created this world and put it in place and who made us, and to understand what went wrong with us and what went wrong with me and why I struggle the way I do and why I um, wrestle with stuff that I do and why stuff happens and what you have done to salvage that and what you are doing to bring it all about um, to an amazing conclusion where we will but be able to fall on our faces and glorify and praise your name. Thank you for this book which tells us all about that. And we gather around it now, and uh, we ask, Father, that you would make it live once again in our hearts and lives, that your Spirit would open the eyes of our hearts and our minds to grasp these truths that we're about to deal with, and um, that uh, we might leave here um, rejoicing and glorifying your Word, um, and thankful that we've had an opportunity uh, like we've had. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. A number of months, ago, or a number of years ago, in the summer, we started a, a series um, just on basics revisited, and uh, I think I had planned it to be about eighteen or nineteen uh, messages, and I think we're about fifteen into it now, which is good, and uh, we're just kind of working our way through it. We just hit it in the summertime, and then, as you know, we go back to books of the Bible in the fall. So we're um, continuing in this um, series of basics revisited, and uh, what's up on the slot today is election. And uh, election is um, something that uh, we need to wrestle with, and and I hope by the end of it, you'll understand why, for me, it is a basic. Um, J.I. Packer defines election this way. We might as well just get it on the table uh, before we kind of work our way through some of the scriptures about it. But J.I. Packer defines it this way. The verb elect means to select or choose out. The biblical doctrine of election is that before creation... God selected out of the human race, foreseen as fallen, those whom he would redeem, bring to faith, justify, and glorify in and through Jesus Christ. This divine choice is an expression of free and sovereign grace, for it is unconstrained and unconditional, not merited by anything in those who are its subjects. God owes sinners no mercy of any kind, only condemnation. So it is a wonder and matter for endless praise that he should choose to save any of us, and doubly so when his choice involved the giving of his son to suffer as sin-bearer for the elect. I love the doctrine of election. It has not always been so. Uh, When I first entered into Regent College, um, I was probably one person that they didn't want to see coming down the hallways because I had never been confronted with the doctrine of election. And so for about two years, I argued with anyone who I could corner um, and wrestle with, including professors, and um, have come to a place in my life where I love the doctrine of election. And these are some of the reasons why I love the doctrine of election. And um, uh, I love it because, first of all, it is primarily pastoral. The doctrine of election is primarily pastoral. In other words, it is intended for God's people to be a source of great comfort and of great joy. 
It's intended for God's people to be a source of great assurance in our hearts and in our lives. It's, as J.I. Packer calls it in another place, it's something of a family secret. It's an in-house topic, and it's something that should stimulate within us just this amazing response to the love of God that we have just sung about. Oh, love of God, how rich and poor, pure. That is, a, is reflected in the doctrine of election. And as I have come to understand it in my own life and ap- apply it in my own life, the practical pastoral aspects of the fact that God has set his love upon me have revolutionized my life. So I love it because it is pastoral. I love the doctrine of election also because it is a great motivator for sanctification and holy living. Pastor Gerald, I hope you listened carefully to the passage of Scripture that he read from Second Peter, which talks about all these things that are to be added to our faith, that are to be part of the Christian growth process, part of the sanctification process in our life. And at the end of that, in verse, um, I think it's verse 14, it says, Dear brothers and sisters, work hard to prove that you are really among those God has called and chosen. Do these things and you will never fall away. So I love the doctrine of election because it motivates me to sanctification. It motivates me to right living. It motivates me to live in a way that responds to the grace and the mercy and the love that God has shed abroad in my life. I also, though, love the doctrine of election because it is thoroughly biblical. David writes in Psalm 119, I love your word, O Lord. So it stands to reason that anything that we find in the word of God, we too should love, does it not? And so because the doctrine of election is found in the word of God, I love the doctrine of election. For instance, Ephesians chapter 1 verse 4 to 5 says, Even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will. Ephesians verse one, or chapter 1, verse 11 says, In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. Romans eight twenty nine. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. There are literally dozens of passages of scripture that we could read from Old Testament into New Testament that affirm and teach the doctrine of election. It's also inseparably tied to so many other doctrines in scripture. It's part and parcel of a greater understanding of the doctrine of salvation, of how it is that God works in a saving way to draw men and women, boys and girls, into a relationship with himself. It is intimately connected with a proper understanding of human nature and of our own sinful condition. And that if we don't have a correct understanding of our own sinful condition in human nature, we will never have an appreciation for the doctrine of election. It's intimately tied with a sovereign God who works and acts in this world in a way that is for his glory and for his purpose. It is intimately and and deeply connected with the purpose of Christ dying for us. And as we heard in the testimony this morning, um, how, how when Christ was on the cross, we were on his mind. 
He was thinking about us. He knew us. He was going through our names. And so it is intimately tied to the doctrine of Christ's death, of his dying, and of his resurrection. It is intimately connected with an understanding of the atonement. And, and by the atonement, we mean where with the under, understanding of what it means that Christ did on the cross, what he accomplished for us when he died on the cross. It is woven through that. If the Bible is the word of God, writes R.C. Sproul, not mere human speculation, and if God himself declares that there is such a thing as predestination, then it follows that we must embrace some doctrine of predestination. That makes sense. If you read it in scripture somewhere, you have to do something with it. So every single one of us here has some doctrine of election. It might be different from the person sitting beside you or in front of you, but if it's in scripture and you love the word of God, then you have some idea in your own mind of what it means. R.C. Sproul, when he started out in his ministry, wrote, uh, had these words on his desk. He says, you are required to believe to preach, and to teach what the Bible says is true, not what you want the Bible to say is true. That is such an important thing to keep in mind, even as we come to read it by ourselves in the privacy of our own homes. Sometimes there is so much that we want the Bible to say, but we have to read it for what it actually says. Um, The doctrine of election is part of our statement of faith here at Parksville Fellowship Baptist Church. And I like to say that our statement faith is not what we believe, but it's what we teach. Now, I know that probably not everyone here this morning believes or accepts the doctrine of election, but I will teach it because I believe it. And so what we say is we believe that election is the eternal act of God's sovereign grace by which he chooses, calls, justifies, and glorifies sinners. Those are all big words, and hopefully over the next couple of weeks we'll open most of those words. That it is effectuated by the Holy Spirit. In other words, that it is worked out by the Holy Spirit through God's word in drawing sinners to Christ so that their wills are freely brought into compliance with God's elective purpose. That it excludes all human boasting. That it is demonstrated in believers by their personal faith in Christ, their love to God, and their desire for holiness. That it is the ground of the believer's assurance and promotes humility and service. I love that definition. It says a lot. I don't know if it says everything, but it says a lot. And over the the years that I've been here, we have dealt with different aspects, particularly in the last um, six or eight months when we've been dealing with Ephesians, maybe a bit longer. But I I read from Ephesians chapter uh, 1, verses 4 to 5. And when we dealt with that passage as a a chunk, I I hope that I was able to bring forth to you that That election is a beautiful thing because it describes God's love for us before the world was even founded. It says, in love, he predestined you before the foundation of the world. I love that because what that says to me is God loves me because he loves me. He doesn't love me because he sees what I'm going to do or he sees what I'm going to say or he sees that I'm not going to be such a bad person. No, he loves me in spite of all that I will ever do wrong, of the evil that I do, of the evil thoughts that I have. He set his love upon me before this world was ever founded. And he says that is to his praise and his glory. And so we talked about the doctrine of election in that context. When we came to chapter 2, we realize that the doctrine of election is absolutely critical to our lives because we are dead in our sins and our trespasses. 
We are the walking dead. There is no spiritual life in us. And so as we walk around in this world, we have physical life, but we have no spiritual life. And if we have no spiritual life, how will we ever respond to the message of the gospel? How will we ever respond to this God that has loved us before the foundation of the world? We are toast. We are under the wrath of God, Ephesians tells us. But in verse 4, there are those two beautiful words. But God. And so we saw as we looked at that passage that the doctrine of election is so important because it deals with our sinful condition. It is the answer to our spiritual deadness. And so as we come to it this morning, what I want to do is rather than deal with so many aspects of it that we read in definitions, I want to deal just with one more aspect of it from another passage of scripture. And this is in the aspect of our responsibility to do missions and to evangelize, that even in the midst of our evangelizing, even in the midst of our missionary endeavors, God is at work bringing people to faith in him through Jesus Christ. So if you have your Bibles, turn to Acts chapter 13, and I just want to read verses 42 to 52, and you'll find out, I think, probably fairly quickly why I chose this passage to, uh, to speak on as we reflect on the doctrine of election. Acts chapter 13 Verses uh, 42 to, to 52. As they went out, the people begged that these things might be told them the next Sabbath. And after the meeting of the synagogue broke up, many Jews and devout converts to Judaism followed Paul and Barnabas, who, as they spoke with them, urged them to continue in the grace of God. The next Sabbath, almost the whole city gathered to hear the word of the Lord. But when the Jews saw the crowds, they were filled with jealousy and began to contradict what was spoken by Paul, reviling him. And Paul and Barnabas spoke out boldly, saying, It was necessary that the word of God be spoken first to you. Since you thrust it aside and judge yourselves unworthy of eternal life, behold, we are turning to the Gentiles. For so the Lord has commanded us, saying, I have made you a light for the Gentiles that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. And when the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord. And as many were as appointed to eternal life, believed. And the word of the Lord was spreading throughout the whole region. But the Jews incited the devout women of high standing and the leading men of the city, stirred up persecution against Paul and Barnabas, and drove them out of their district. But they shook off the dust from their feet against them and went to Iconium. And the disciples were filled with joy and with the Holy Spirit. What is happening here is these verses are a response to a gospel message that Paul had preached at the synagogue. And it's an amazing message because it presents um, Christ as the center of the message, which I think is such a critical thing for us to remember when we're talking about the gospel and the good news. And what Paul did was he started in the Old Testament. And if you were to go back and read the sermon, you'd read how God was at work even in the life of Israel before they had any desire for him. God was at work in choosing people to lead them, in choosing Abraham out of Ur Ur and Chaldeas, in, in bringing prophets to them. Eventually, he brought them out of Egypt and he brought them into the promised land. And then they wanted a king, so God gave them a king and then they had kings that were a king that was lousy and he gave him David and the culmination of God's saving work in the life of Israel was that he says in verse um, uh, in verse 
23, and so he, and, and of this man's offspring, God has brought to Israel a savior, Jesus, as he promised. And so this whole culmination of God's work in the life of the nation of Israel and of the people of this world is he brought a savior, Jesus Christ. God is a seeking God. God is a searching God. God is a God who is involved in history. God is a God who is calling men and women, boys and girls, out of the world into his wonderful family. And so Paul sets that foundation, first of all, in the Old Testament. And then in verses 26 to 37, we have another portion of his sermon recounted. And it's the portion which I think is such a critical part because it emphasizes two of the key works of Christ, our Lord and Savior. The first one is the fact that Jesus died and was buried. That's what we're going to celebrate in a little bit. Jesus died and was buried. It is so important that we understand that Jesus was a human being, that he came to this world, and that he died. Because in his death is tied up a whole understanding of the fact that he died for our sins, that he died in our place, that he bore the wrath of God that we would never be able to bear. And so that he physically died and was buried. That is so important for us to understand because it makes sense then of the fact that God has to punish sin. That God's wrath has to find a, a, a source in which it can be poured out upon. And that was on Jesus Christ. But the amazing good news of the gospel, loved ones, is that Jesus did not stay in the grave. And Paul then goes on and says, but God raised him from the dead. And you know what that means? That means that God accepted his sacrifice. That God accepted the gift of his life for us. That God looked at Christ and said, yes, you lived perfectly. Yes, you pleased me completely. Yes, the offering of yourself for be, on the behalf of all those who would be saved, I have accepted. And God, by his power, raised him from the grave. And so that is what we respond to. That is what we call out to. We look and we see ourselves as sinners. We look and we see ourselves as in trouble. We look and realize that we are under the wrath of God. What's our hope? What's the solution? It's Jesus Christ, dead and buried and raised. And then what Paul does, like any good sermon should do, is he brings it to a point then where he drives it home to individuals and says, now you have to respond to this. It's not enough that I just declare this to you. It's not enough that I just tell you about Jesus Christ. But now you have a choice. And he gave the hearers that day, as we often give here, he gives them a choice. He says, you can either choose life or you can choose death. You can choose Jesus Christ, who he goes on and he says, Let it be known to you, therefore, brothers, that through this man, through Jesus Christ, there is forgiveness of sins. And it is proclaimed to you, and that by him, everyone who believes in Jesus Christ is freed from that which he could not be freed from the law of Moses. In other words, we are all trying to work out our salvation. We are all trying to measure up to a standard. We are all hoping that our good outweighs our bad. But we know that that will never happen. We know that we will never be perfect. We know that we will never measure up to God's standard. So what is our solution? Our solution is Jesus Christ, who lived perfectly to God's standard. We can never please God by keeping the law. We will fall short. But in Jesus Christ, there is freedom from the bondage of the law 
and there is forgiveness of sins. He says the option is yours. Choose Christ. Find him to be your life. Find him to be the one that has dealt with your sin and your shame and your guilt. If you don't choose Christ, the other alternative is to choose death. He says, beware, therefore, lest what is said in the prophets should come about. Look, you scoffers, be astounded and perish. That's the other alternative. That's the word of God. That's, we can choose life or we can choose death. The gospel is presented, choose life or choose death. And then we come to these verses then that we've just read. And this is the response then to this sermon of Paul. And we see what's going on now in the hearts of these people as they have heard the good news of the gospel. As they have heard this presentation of the importance and the necessity of responding to Christ Jesus. And I love the response of of what goes forth. Um, There's a few things that, that particularly impress me. The first one says, as they went out, the people begged that these things might be told them. I love it when people beg to hear more at the end of one of my sermons. It doesn't happen very often, but that's what was going on here. And it, it, it's kind of, it's almost as just as Paul and got off the pulpit, people were saying, we need to hear more. What, what, what's this you're talking about? Jesus, he died? He was resurrected? Tell us more. And so they just couldn't get enough of what Paul and Barnabas had been saying. And so they begged them to come back the next week. I don't think in 30 years of ministry I'd have, I've ever had anyone beg me to come back next Sunday and make sure I was in the pulpit. I have had people say to me, because um, we follow, as you know, we preach through books of the Bible, and so they say, Paul, I can't wait to what you're dealing with next week because they've read ahead and they know what's coming. And I so appreciate that because that's demonstrating that people are listening. It's demonstrating that the word of God is working in their hearts. It's demonstrating that there's a response to truth. And so that's what's going on here. They're responding to the truth of the gospel. And then you read a little bit farther and we find out that many of them couldn't wait until the next Sunday. Verse 42 says, And after the meeting of the synagogue broke up, many Jews and devout followers to Judaism followed Paul and Barnabas, and they spoke with them. So as they were walking out into the parking lot, as they were walking out of the synagogue, they started questioning, and they started asking for more, and they said, Can we go for coffee? Can we go for lunch? Can we meet and talk about this further? And Paul and Barnabas' response to them, was that they urged them to continue asking questions. I think that's what it means, urged them to continue in the grace of God. I don't think that means that they were saved all of a sudden, but all of a sudden, the gospel was being shed abroad in their hearts. They were now being able to see the difference between the law and grace, and they were starting to respond to that. And so Paul and Barnabas said, keep reading the scriptures, keep reading the prophets, and allow the work of God that started in you to continue to grow and to flourish. And then we come to the third thing as we get there seven days later. The next Saturday in the synagogue. And what do we read in verse 44? The next Sabbath, almost the whole city gathered to hear the word of God. I suspect there was a little bit of hyperbole there. We, we use that kind of language when we talk, do we not? But what he was saying is that when they came to the synagogue that next Sunday, there was standing room only. That so... Um, that the word of God had had such an impact on the people. That they had, they had come from all different walks of life and all different corners of that city to hear more about the good news of the gospel. They came back the next week. 
And you know, you know how it goes sometimes, don't you? You meet somebody at a bus stop or you meet them in a coffee shop and you have a great discussion with them and maybe you give them a tract or you give them um, a church phone number or you give them a church bulletin and you say to them, hey, we've got a growth group. Why don't you meet us at the growth group Wednesday and here's my phone number. Yeah, yeah, we'll be there. And, you, and then you say, oh, or we'll meet you at church. And they, yeah, yeah, we'll be there. And so you, you rush to church and you're all excited and they don't show up. But here, they showed up. There was this amazing response to the good news of the gospel. And what is it that they were showing up for? The gospel is very clear. They were showing up for the word of the Lord. See, what's going on here? See, Antioch was a Gentile city. And it was, it was like, um, uh, it, it certainly had a Jewish part to it. And the Jews went to the synagogue. But the Gentiles probably never set foot in a synagogue. But when Paul and Barnabas came back that following week, it was packed. What's going on? Was it great advertising? Did they kind of drop a whole bunch of, uh, uh, of great posters and put them all over Antioch? Maybe they, there was news that there was this great debate that was going to happen and, and that Paul and Barnabas were going to take on the synagogue leaders. Maybe it was news that these two strangers had come to town and they were dressed a little bit differently or they looked kind of funny and so everyone was wanting to come and see what was going on. That's not what the text says. The text says that they came to hear the word of the Lord. You find that woven through these four or these five or eight verses. Did you hear as I read? Verse 44, the next Sabbath, almost the whole city gathered to hear the word of the Lord. Loved ones, there is such a temptation and a pressure to squeeze out the word of God, to, to fill it with a social gospel, to, to fill it with kindness and good deeds, and to be quiet about the word of God. The Bible reminds us again and again and again and again that the gospel is the word of the Lord. You go to verse 46, and Paul and Barnabas spoke out boldly, saying, It was necessary that the word of God be spoken to you first. There it is again, the emphasis on the word of God. You come to verse 48, And when the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of God, and as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. There it is again, rejoicing and glorifying the word of God. Of God. And then you come to verse 49, and the word of God was spreading throughout the whole region. Do we get that? Do we understand the centrality of the word of God to the gospel? I think God is making a point here. I think He's trying to remind us and to refresh in us that if you move away from the centrality of the word of God, you've moved away from the core of the gospel. Certainly, there are situations in which the word of God is preached for great lengths and over great many years and there's no response. That does not mean you give up on the word of God. It is still the word of God that we proclaim. Other times, you can proclaim the word of God and there's immediate overwhelming response. Ours is not to determine the response. Ours is to be faithful to the word of God. Not all, though, responded well to the word of God. You read that, the truth is, and you know this, that anywhere you proclaim the gospel, you are going to have different reactions. Sometimes people are going to be massively offended. Other times they're going to be incredibly argumentative. Sometimes they're going to be terribly responsive to it. It was Peter Jones in his uh, newest book, which I think everyone should read, um, one or two and seeing the difference between them. 
But he writes in there, opposition arises not when we get the gospel wrong, but when we get it right. Isn't that true? Think about the times you've had conflicts with people. It's when you've spoke the truth of the gospel. Not when you've avoided the truth of the gospel. So it says, they were filled with jealousy. And they talked abusively against what Paul was saying. And there could be any number of reasons behind that. But I think the primary reason was they were bothered by the crowds. They had been working in this city for how long? And they had a few Gentile converts, but not very many. Here, Paul and Barnabas blow in. And in one Sunday, they've got the whole city turned upside down. I think they were jealous. Because so many people were responding to the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's a sad commentary, is it not, that on the early expansion of the church, that most of the persecution came directly from Israel and the Jews. But you notice the response of the people? We can't miss this. They had heard the gospel as everybody else. But what does he say to them in verse 46? It was necessary that the word of God be spoken first to you. And then this is their response. Since you thrust it aside and judge yourselves unworthy of eternal life. That's a pretty strong condemnation on them. They heard the word of God. They heard the gospel. They heard the good news of Jesus Christ. And their response was to take it, throw it aside and says, I am not worthy of eternal life. John MacArthur helps them. Um, understand that phrase a little bit uh, when he, he says there, if I were to take you to the, to the Louvre in France and to show you the Mona Lisa, and you look at the Mona Lisa and you say, oh, that's lousy art. I say, my friend, the Mona Lisa is not on trial. You are. That's already been judged as a masterpiece. You're a crummy art critic. The point is, they have pronounced their own sentence. They've looked at the Mona Lisa and they said, that's crummy art. So they've judged themselves unworthy of, of maybe ever having good art in their home. In a much more profound way, we're, we're, we're confronted with the gospel. We look at the gospel, we see what it says, and we say, nah, I don't need that in my life. We are pronouncing judgment on ourselves by saying, I am not worthy of eternal life, or I don't need eternal life. By rejecting the good news of the gospel, Paul says to them, you have pronounced yourselves unfit for everlasting life. But their rejection of the gospel leads to a great opportunity for others. And here we have the positive response to the gospel. Luke records a number of instances where Paul states clearly his calling, and it's pretty distinct. It's to the Gentiles. That God had, Paul had first gone to the Jews, and that makes sense. The Jews were the apple of God's eyes. They were his special possession. But the Jews were never meant to have a corner on the gospel. And as the passage that he quotes from Jeremiah illustrates, for the Jews, God's intention always for them was that they would be a light to the Gentiles. And in fact, when Jesus was born and he was brought to Simeon, Simeon's prophecy over Jesus was, and you will be a light to the Gentiles. And so Paul says, my passion is first for you. I loved you. I loved you more than you could ever imagine. I would even give up my eternal salvation if that meant that some of you could come to know Christ as your Lord and Savior. But he says, since you reject, I am now going as a light to the Gentiles. See, I love this about the gospel, loved ones. 
The gospel is not just for a select few. The gospel is not just for you and your family and friends. The gospel is meant to be for the whole world. It is to be a light to the ends of the earth, it says in this gospel, that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. What is remarkable in this passage is you have the same good news. You have the same gospel proclaimed. You have the Jews who rejected and judged themselves as unworthy of eternal life. And then you have the Gentiles who begin rejoicing and glorifying in the word of God. That means they obeyed it. That means they received it. That means they accepted it. That means they experienced the forgiveness of sins. That means that they knew what it was like to have Jesus come in and wash away their sins. To to all of a sudden realize that there was no longer any condemnation. That they were out from under the wrath of God. Naturally that leads then to rejoicing, does it not? And glorifying in the word of God. So great was their joy that it spread through the whole region. And then we come then to the main verse that I wanted to illustrate this point. It says there that as many were appointed to eternal life believed. What's going on here? In the midst of evangelism, in the midst of uh, missions work, in the midst of human responsibility and human choice and some choosing and others rejecting, we have this phrase written in there, and as many were as appointed to eternal life believed. Loved ones, that's the doctrine of election. That's the doctrine of election woven right into the fabric of our responsibility not only to evangelize and to do missions work, but also of our responsibility to respond to the word of God that is proclaimed. There are people who cannot imagine how anybody can be evangelist if God decides who will be saved and then saves them. The argument goes, if God is going to save certain people, God will save them regardless. What I do doesn't matter. Or if it depends on me, then it depends on me, and you must not talk about election. Actually, though, those who have the greatest faith in God's electing power are those who, by the grace of God, have proved to be the most effective evangelists. Because they understand that it is the word of God that God uses to bring men and women and boys and girls to repentance, not their own ability to try and convince somebody and argue somebody into the kingdom of God. Do you know that virtually all of the pioneer missionaries were believers in election? Why did they go out to evangelize if they believed that God was going to save people anyway? They were absolutely and utterly convinced of their responsibility to go into all the world and preach the gospel without prejudice to any and everyone would hear and even those who would not listen. But the response to the gospel was in the individual's that heard it, and in the God who calls. Truth is, God, salvation belongs to God. I know that. I believe that with all of my heart. And I understand, and these are twin things that you and I have to wrestle with, and the sooner you come to uh, rest in some of the mystery of Scripture, the more comfortable you'll sleep at night. But the Scripture affirms both truths are to be held. One truth is that we are responsible for our response to the good news of the gospel and to the work of God in creation. You find that everywhere in scripture. We are all responsible for our response to God's word and God's work in creation. But the other twin truth that is woven through scripture is that God chooses and that God elects in his sovereign love. I do not know how those two are woven together, 
but I believe both of them with all of my being and all of my heart. There is a, an illustration, and I was trying to find it. I believe it's attributed to Charles Spurgeon. And, and I love this because for me, it just helps me to keep these two twin truths in mind. As people are wrestling with heaven, as they are hearing the gospel, you, you approach heaven and there's a big gate. And over the gate is written that great verse of scripture, whosoever will may come. That is boldly and loudly proclaimed through all of the scriptures. Whosoever will may come. And those then that will and come to Christ walk through the gates. And as they walk into heaven, they turn around and they look back. And written over that same gate is saved from the foundation of the world. Those are two truths, beloved, that we have to hold tightly and we have to hold together. I started by indicating the doctrine of election is a pastoral doctrine. Here's J.I. Packer's words on that. It is brought in to help Christians see how great is the grace that saves them. And to move them to humility, confidence, joy, praise, faithfulness, and holiness in response. It is a family secret of the children of God. We do not know who else he has chosen among those who do not yet believe, nor why it was his good pleasure to choose us in particular. What we do know is, first, that had had we not been chosen for life, we would not be believers now. And second, that as elect believers, we may rely on God to finish in us the good work that he started. Knowledge of one's election brings comfort and joy. Loved ones, as we come to the Lord's table, I think it seems to magnify the electing love of God on our behalf. It magnifies the work of Christ who died for us. It magnifies this love of God that goes back before ever this world was created to when our names were written in the Lamb's book of life before the foundation of the world. As we come to this table, we are stunned and awed By a God who would do what he didn't have to do. By a God who would do something for us that we did not deserve. We are stunned and awed by the magnitude of a God who would love us so much. To send his son, Jesus Christ. To live in this world and be so mistreated and abused. And face the powers of hell like you and I would never face them. And then to die. And then be raised to life so that we might have eternal life.